All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's Tuesday, October the 26th, year of our Lord 2021. And uh, I was not going to do a whole episode for you today, but I'm just jumping in to introduce your episode today. What I'm going to play for you is the entire panel from Ampfest this summer in Miami, featuring yours truly as moderator, Jack Posobiec, and Darren Beatty from Revolver.news. And the panel was called The FBI and January 6th. It's a very good episode. Very good, very good panel, mostly because of them. Um, and I wanted you all to be able to hear it as soon as possible. We just got the audio. And while I am here, I just want to say a great big thank you to everybody who's been joining up to fundrealnews.com over the last couple of days to support our work. Because as you know, we are closing in on that Mr. Fauci. So if you want to help us out, fundrealnews.com is the URL. I will read off a list of new members, first names only, uh, on the next episode. But for now, I guess I'd like to introduce you, ladies and gentlemen, my favorite thing to do, introduce myself, is Raheem Kassam. Raheem Kassam, Jack Posobiec, and Dr. Darren Beattie. It's, it's like Raheem's never left. I don't know who's, who's <laughs> hogs the stage more, me or Jack, at these things. Um, but I'm delighted to share a stage with him. I'm delighted to share a stage with Darren Beatty. Darren uh, does real work, um, just amazing work at Revolver.news, for those of you that don't know it. Uh, but it's such a fantastic website. It does a little bit of aggregation, but it also does a lot of investigation. And so I'm delighted to uh, have uh, both of you on stage here for this conversation about January the 6th and the FBI. And before I ask the first question to Darren, I just want to have a little reminisce session with, with me old mate Jack over here. Um, we were on Capitol Hill that morning. We were. We walked down Constitution Avenue, which yep. for those of you that don't know is the, the road that goes down straight past the Capitol building, downhill towards downtown Washington, D.C. Um, and Jack will remind me that I was uh, absent-minded, paying attention to something else, probably swiping through girls on Instagram or something. And um, it's, uh, well, it's better than what most what? conservatives in D.C. are swiping for on Instagram. Indeed. So, so, um, so he's, sorry, so he's, you know, we actually leave because I had to get back to One American News uh, before Trump's speech ended. So we're walking down Constitution Ave, He's not paying attention, and I say, uh, I say, Raheem, seems like there's a lot of people over at the Capitol, and he's like, not paying attention, not paying yeah. attention. I said, it seems like there's a lot of, and then we hear it, boom, Bang. boom, the first two flashbangs that went off that morning, sun grenades, if you're not familiar with the parlance. So we actually were there walking down Constitution Avenue on January 6th when the first kind of conflagration started. And it was at that point, obviously, we realized that things were not going according to plan. Well, so, and let's, let's ask that or, question then. If or, yeah. as, as, as Darren's contention would be, 
Perhaps they were. Well, <laughs> that's the point. Darren, um, January the 6th, um, intelligence failure or intelligence operation? Well, that's a great question, and I'm so delighted that that is the preeminent question and the preeminent focus now as to what's actually relevant in explaining the events of 1-6. Was this an intelligence failure or an intelligence setup? Uh, my news organization, as you were uh, kind enough to mention, Revolver.News, uh, made quite a name for itself in first advancing the thesis that it's very likely an Intel setup. And our argument to begin with was quite simple. We looked at the charging documents for some of the highest profile indictments related to 1-6 offenses, the militia groups like the Oath Keepers and so forth. And what we found was something very bizarre. What we found was that in the charging documents themselves, there were many people referenced, unindicted, who according to the narration of the events, committed acts far more egregious than those indicted. There was an undeniable case of selective non-prosecution. And so we asked, why? Why are there some people mentioned in these documents who are not charged with anything when all of these little fish are charged with anything possible? How do you explain that? That the little fish are getting charged and some of the bigger fish, the higher ranked people in these militia groups, go free. And what, what um, uh, to explain for everybody what he was taught, what he was specifically looking at were the conspiracy charges, right? So this idea that the militias planned to go in and conduct an operation of takeover of the capital, right? So they're charging people with this conspiracy or at least conspiracy to start a riot. And yet, so they're going through these text messages and Facebook chats and encrypted chats in some areas. And yet there's certain people who are charged and there's some people who are not charged. And it seems like the people that weren't charged were the ones really driving the push for right. more aggressive action or to use the parlance of the, uh, the conspiracy charge is overt acts in furtherance of the conspiracy. And yet those people are not charged. In many cases, yes. And that's deeply suspicious. Of course, there could be different explanations for this. But to motivate one's uh, intuition as to what the most likely explanation would be, one could look through the entire history of the FBI and how they set up events. But you don't need to go back to the 60s and 70s. You only need to go back, and this is what we reported at Revolver.News, our original report. You only need to go back a couple months before the so-called insurrection of 1-6 to the infamous kidnapping plot. There was a kidnapping plot of uh, domestic terrorists who wanted to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitner. And that's why we need to mobilize the entirety of America's national security apparatus to destroy these fearsome domestic terrorists. But guess what? It turns out not only did this so-called kidnapping plot also involve a plot to storm the Michigan State Capitol, not only did it also involve one of the main militia groups also imputed to 1-6, it turns out that 12 out of the 26 plotters 
were either federal informants or undercover agents. Including the number one guy and the number two guy. Exactly. That is a hell of a ratio. 12 out of 26 undercover and who not only sat back and let it happen, but played an active participatory role in making the event happen. And an em another interesting detail, the head of the Detroit FBI field office who oversaw this Michigan infiltration operation, Stephen D'Antuono, the day after these so-called plotters were arrested, FBI Director Ray promotes him to the DC field office where he goes on to oversee the 1-6 investigation. How fishy is that? And in light of that context, how do we explain the selective non-prosecution of some of the key militia members imputed to the events of 1-6, don't touch them, and all the little fish, anyone who seemingly set foot in Washington, D.C. on that day with a MAGA hat is rotting in prison. And yet some of the top-level militia people who have done everything and more that the indicted people did, they're not touching them, and in some cases, not even searching them because they don't want to know what's in their phone because if they find, as the New York Times reported, one of the Proud Boys was texting his FBI handler, if they find texts like this, they're obligated to turn it over to the defense. So they don't want your communications if you're an informant, and that's why some of these people have not only been protected from indictment, they've been protected from the standard basic search. Makes no sense unless you look at the possibility, very troubling from our point of view, that this wasn't just uh, an intelligence failure. We know they're incompetent. It was an intelligence setup. So, well, let me just, let me just oh, yeah, go ahead, follow go ahead, up a question ahead. here as well, because, you know, I, in my six years I've spent in this country so far, I, I have found that uh, Americans, especially conservative Americans, love their institutions. And, and uh, there's the, at the Monocle restaurant in Washington, D.C., there's, there's an inscription above the, uh, above the door, institutions are more important than people. And it's a, it's a hallmark of traditional conservatism, actually, is, is building institutions, preserving institutions. So my follow-up question to all of this, and you know, with the assumption, because I do believe it, uh, that 99%, if not more, of, of Revolver.News' theses on this is correct, um, then how do you get the American public to recognize that the institution um, no, must no longer exist in, in its, I don't believe it's, let me ask it that way, do you believe the FBI is reformable? That's a very interesting question and I will answer, I'll give the answer that I gave on, on TV uh, on Tucker Carlson's show when he asked me about this and he said, look, and I think it's very important for everyone to understand this, our politics in this country will for the most part be fake and performative, fake and performative unless we bring the national security state to heel. We focus on elections, we focus on all of these performative things without bringing the national security state under control. All of these things will be fake and amount to nothing. And this is the broader context for understanding the FBI intelligence setup of January 6th. It's the context in which to understand the broader repurposing of our national security apparatus domestically in order to silence, suppress, crush the energies associated with 
Donald Trump's victory in 2016. Unless we find the organizational capacity, the guts, the brains to bring the national security state to heel, it's all fake. When you have listened to Darren, and he's been talking about this for almost a year now, right, because we are coming up on the one year. It'll be the one year anniversary of the election of 3 November, and then it'll be the one year anniversary of 1-6. And you can imagine, by the way, I can tell you without a doubt, the theatrics and the ceremony that are going to be played out, the pageantry on the one year anniversary of 1-6 is going to be like nothing you've seen. Uh, we did the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and it passed with barely more the perfunctory memorial. 1-6 is going to be enshrined. Nancy Pelosi will be up there. Uh, there, will be, there will be garlands of flowers. There'll oh, be black armbands. Black armbands, you name it, right? But if you listen to Darren's thesis, it's very important. And it's also important to know, and I, I come to this from you know, a different side of the table where I was the guy on the other side of the table as an intelligence officer uh, conducting these sorts of operations with working as handlers, working with informants, not here in the United States, but, but overseas. You, know, you work with informants, of course you do. That's what you do when you're trying to, in, in my case, it would be collect intelligence. But of course, I was privy to other operations that were going on and other types of uh, setups like the one he's speaking of. And so the problem, though, is that Afghanistan has now been turned off. And we saw how that went. Most of the wars around the, the world have been shut off by and large. And so the national security state, though, still exists. And they need something to do. So I talked about it when I wrote my Antifa book last year, and they said, well, they refuse to do anything about Antifa, so they need to target those energies towards something else. So first it was QAnon, right? QAnon was the first one, but then that didn't really go anywhere because it turned out that that you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't this big Illuminati Freemason setup like they thought it was going to be. It's actually just you know, a couple, not that many people to begin with. Look at what Chris Ruofo and Steve Bannon just talked about it, what he found that they are gonna start classifying people who protest the teaching of critical race theory in their school boards as domestic terrorists. Why would they do that? Well, because they're seeing the energies that start up the same way as Donald Trump's uh, 2016 victory. What, what was it? It was Facebook groups, it was Twitter chat groups, it was events like this where people come, in, come together and say, we want to stand against the regime, we want to stand against the ruling class, we want to stand against the power structure, and so they know that those are the networks that need to be disrupted. So network disruption is the name of the game here. It's not even necessarily locking people up. It's shutting you down, it's breaking you apart, it's making these networks dissent, it's making them not able to function together, not able to put on great events like this one. That is the goal because they know that's exactly how you uh, institute these demotivational forces towards anything. So it's the chilling effect, number one, of classifying you as a domestic terrorist, but also, number two, the ability to break up any of that movement before it attains critical mass. Darren, I want to bring you back to um, one of the points you made about how you don't have to go that far back to, to realize what's happened here. But if, if you indulge us to go back a little bit, I heard you talking on Matt Gates's podcast um, last week about a lot of this stuff. I mean, the, the tactics are not necessarily new. Right. And, and the end goal isn't even necessarily new. Um, rage Against the Machine 
used to sing about the, the, the end of history theory, you know, Fukuyama's, uh, uh, you know, globalist, globalist uh, uh, um, wet dream, for want of a better word. Um, and, and I wonder if you can sort of enlighten us, because it was a surprise to me looking into this, how for, for decades a lot of these tactics have been so readily deployed. Yes, absolutely. These tactics are nothing new. They go back a long time. And as Jack pointed out, the primary objective is disrupting organization and preventing uh, momentum from developing within movements that these agencies perceive as a threat. And unfortunately, they don't perceive anything as great of a threat now as, as uh, basically populism, both from the left and the right. And um, this is why most of the coverage of these issues has actually taken place uh, on the left. And a lot of people who are associated with the left have been covering uh, the FBI's history of disrupting um, uh, protest movements and so forth. Um, and in the War on Terror, the first War on Terror, the second War on Terror is against us. The first War on Terror, they were doing the same thing. In many cases, a lot of Muslims were set up. They were simply set up. Um, an astonishing detail that I, that I learned uh, while researching uh, all of this for Revolver.News is the bomb that was made that eventually went off in the World Trade Center for the first attack, that bomb was made by an FBI informant. Wow. That, the bomb in the first World Trade Center attack was made by an FBI informant. It's, it's amazing stuff. There's, and, um, to, 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 piggy, to go on that one, um, I, I talk about this publicly every once in a while, but uh, I, I had a, my cousin and her husband were standing at the finish line of the Boston Marathon when the attack happened in April 2013. Um, she lost both of her legs, he lost one of his. And the more you dig on that one, you find that these guys were well known to federal law enforcement. One of them was even somehow seemingly able to travel back and forth to Dagestan, right, which is in the Caucasus, part of Chechnya, without a passport. Returns, but I don't know how you travel anywhere overseas without a passport, and right? I need a COVID passport. But he's able to travel back and forth with impunity. There's murders taking place that are tightly associated with them that seemingly go unsolved. It was a, a, a Jewish brother at a pizza shop and his, his two brothers. And then you come to find that neither of them had the technical expertise to construct the bombs that were made at the Boston bombing. You know, this thing about Inspire magazine uh, that put out, that is, you know, make a bomb in your mom's kitchen, that had nothing to do with the bombs they used. These were sophisticated bombs. And yet the FBI, when you go and ask them about these questions, it turns into a black hole. And sources within the Boston Police Department say that every time they tried to find out who actually made the bombs, the FBI would come in, take all the evidence, and it would disappear. How about that? So it's nothing new. It's just what's new about this version is that all of these efforts are targeted against the deplorables, generally speaking. That the deplorables are the new designated group that uh, the government is going to use its incredible resourcefulness and ruthlessness and lack of any sense of ethics to go after. 
and partially this is to justify their budgets. The first war on terror is kind of played out with a punctuation mark, as we saw in Afghanistan. So now they need a new justification for their insane budgets. But partially, it's, 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 it's a part of this ideological consolidation that you're seeing across the American regime, which I've come to call not even America, but the globalist American empire, which has a rather convenient acronym. And so um, this, is, this is all what's going on. Uh, it's, uh, it's very troubling. And I want to just jump on a point that Raheem made to say, well, the conservatives, we're dispositionally inclined to venerate and trust institutions. I think that's true. And I think that's another reason you see a lot of the reporting exposing the malfeasance and the impropriety on the part of the FBI. A lot of this comes from the left. And the reason for this is a matter, I think, of political psychology. I think people on the left like to think of themselves as challenging unjust institutions of power. Now, these days, nine times out of 10, maybe 99 out of 100, they're serving the interests of those institutions of power. Nonetheless, from a psychological point of view, they have to think of themselves as challenging unjust, powerful institutions. Whereas those on the right, conservatives, I think tend to, as a matter of disposition, want to think of themselves as venerating just institutions of authority. And so I think it's harder to do, and this is what I try to do through revolver.news, is to implement the requisite software update such that people on the right who are inclined to venerate their institutions, in particular their national security institutions, in particular the military and so forth, well, I'd say to that, update uh, to the reality that these institutions have declared war on you. I'd say that General Milley and Chris Ray and some of these others have been quite helpful in, indeed, this, indeed. in this endeavor because one only need point at them when you can see the corruption, you can see the soft-minded you know, answers saying that calling Afghanistan a success <laughs> when we can all see what happened. You said it was a strategic failure, but a logistical success. You had, sorry, you had people falling off of airplanes and, you know, everything else. And you brought over, the people that you brought over are more likely to be uh, child, uh, child abusers and pedophiles than they are to have been anyone who actually helped the United States. And of course, we're seeing that as these migrants are now being brought into and, uh, really just let out off of military bases. We have stories of them walking off. But Darren, one thing that came up in your research that I wanted to ask you about is that it, it isn't the first time we've seen this because these forces from the FBI were first turned against the left. And there was a specific tactic that was used and it was bodyguards. Yeah. That bodyguards were always brought in. So they would see a movement coming about and then as a way of ingratiating themselves, but also having a, a plausible excuse for why would someone with a military or law enforcement background be involved in here, they would come in through the use of bodyguards. So talk about how that's been used in the past and how it's used now. Oh yeah, that's been used, uh, it was amazing. So he's referring to a piece we did, another piece at Revolver, sort of a uh, supplementary piece to some of the main ones that said, look, a uh, common tactic that the feds use to infiltrate organizations is they volunteer free security. They say, hey, you know, we, we like what you're doing and we know you got 
really high security costs, why don't you just bring us in the fold, we'll provide security. What a better way to gain full operational awareness of what these people are doing and also trust. And so, um, you know, uh, from Malcolm X to uh, Tupac Shakur to you name it, it's, it's amazing. It almost makes you wonder, like, is there anyone whose bodyguards aren't FBI Wait, don't, don't, don't go past that. What, what was the deal with Malcolm X and Tupac? Well, I mean, they had multiple, they had multiple bodyguards, but in the case of both of them, it turns out that they each had a bodyguard security detail who was an FBI informant. Have, has anyone in the room ever heard that before, that Tupac Shakur had an FBI informant as his bodyguard? You've all heard about Tupac and what happened to him, right? Sure, obviously, but that, that's the first time in my life I ever saw that piece of information, and it, it actually blew my mind to think that Malcolm X, I understood. Martin Luther King, of course, we know the surveillance that was done on him, but the fact that even Tupac, was seen as potentially part of a burgeoning movement that he would be infiltrated. This is, by the way, years after all of the laws were put in place to you know, prevent this from going on. Um, it really asked, makes you ask the question of, what is the FBI doing? What is the military doing? What are the intelligence communities doing? And you know, I've seen this when I was in the IC as well, that when you start asking too many questions that go after one of these sort of um, how to put it, uh, compartmented operations, that if you start asking questions in good faith, saying, why aren't we tracking this? Why aren't we tracking that? And you're told to shut up, and then you go back and look, and all the files that you were just looking at have been deleted, and they're not even on the database anymore, but you can see that from the numbering sequence of the messages that there's several that are now missing, where did they go, right? What is this black hole? And anyone who's been in the military or been in the intel community knows exactly what I'm talking about, that you reach a certain level and you grasp onto something that it, and it, it just slips out and you can't figure out what it is and then you come back and look at it from this thesis and you realize that the people who were, uh, Benghazi was a great example of this as well. You know, we were told early on that, you know, not to put stomp on Benghazi too much, I think the story's been covered, but remember, you were told for a time that it was a YouTube, a response to a YouTube video that this terrorist attack took place. And yet, what they were really doing was covering up the fact that, you know, the question that I kept asking Wait, was- don't gloss over it. It was a, it was a Christian pastor, yeah, yeah, a Christian pastor who had yes. caused this to happen. And they in said- the, in the narrative. Who was later arrested. Yeah. But I kept asking the question, what was the ambassador doing in a CIA safe house in Benghazi in the first place? That's not the capital, right? And it was because, and of course it later comes out that they were running guns from Libya and they were selling these anti-aircraft missiles to the moderate Syrian rebels uh, who of course were the real good guys and then later on it turns out to be ISIS and everything else gets kicked off. Turned out to be ISIS. Uh, but, you know, really go back to that. And so understand that in many of these cases, it never holds up to scrutiny. It only needs the Facebook whistleblower, the fake faux whistleblower, I call her Facebook Karen. Um, Facebook Karen, we can see through this very quickly, but it doesn't matter because okay. it's only intended to work for as long as they need to cement a narrative. Yeah. 
Um, we've got about four minutes left, and I have, a, I have an interesting question. I was in, as you know, I was in Kiev for, mm -hmm. the, uh, for the Medan He was MI6's uh, guy protest. in, uh, in I Kiev. Was, I was the, uh, the MI6 informant there. No, I wasn't really. Um, but I saw, I saw this revolution take place very quickly, and a revolution that was you know, predicated on freedom and democracy and self-determination and all this stuff. Um, but I was buying sort of sandwiches at Pret-a-Manger while the you know, government troops were storming the lines of the, of the protesters and so on and so forth. Um, and it was kind of this extremely quick color revolution, right, that, that we saw of this um, deposing of a nation-first um, leadership who wanted to make their own foreign policy away from NATO, away from the European Union, and those forces decided, ah, you got to go. Um, it feels to me that we are living the, that kind of Madan moment, but in slow motion here in the U.S. Am I, am I right about that? Yes. I mean, I, I think you see uh, multiple dimensions of this. And again, the broader trend that everybody should be aware of, I think most of us, if not all of us, are now, but it's the most important trend, is how the national security state has declared all of us to be domestic terrorists. And I think that should inform um, how one uh, approaches politics in the future and how one prioritizes political goals. I just reiterate as we close that all the politics that you see, it might be fun, it might be entertaining, it might satisfy your, uh, your uh, bile and indignation, it might be helpful from a, a cathartic point of view, but it won't get us from point A to point B unless and until the national security state is brought under control. It's all fake and performative until that happens. And if you remember one thing, I hope you remember that. Well, when Chuck Schumer kind of gave this away, I think he was on Rachel Maddow early on in the Trump administration. And this was before Russiagate had really even started. And, you know, we've all gone through the, the exegesis of Russiagate, but this was, I think, even before the dossier had dropped. And Trump was coming out saying, uh, you know, some of these smoke signals were out there that uh, his campaign may have had something to do with Russia, and the Alpha Bank story had come and gone. Jake Sullivan, of course, was the one who pushed this. He's now the national security vice. The current, by the way, talking about the national security state, we now have someone who was part of the Russiagate operation is the White House national security advisor to Joe Biden, right? One of the chief architects of Russiagate, this guy Jake Sullivan and his uh, nefarious partner in crime, Jonathan Feiner. So you need to understand this, that these people are ensconced now in positions of power. But what Chuck Schumer said, he actually gave it away. He said, if you go after the intel community, they've got seven ways from Sunday getting back at you. He pretty much just gave away how DC works. He completely gave this away. And if you want to talk about this on an international scale, well, you might have to bring up Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> Well, um, I think we're up against the, the clock here. I just want to thank uh, Darren for being here and make sure you're all subscribing to Revolver.news. Uh, Revolver yeah. is uh, donations-based. You can take donations. Uh, no, donations. And I was saying the funny thing in the news business, un unlike other businesses, the more effective you are, the harder it is to make money. After our latest <laughs> report, Google Ads just totally killed us. So 
There you go. We're doing something right, I suppose. But yeah, go to revolver.news, read it. We have investigative reports. We have everything. If you, if you like, give a donation or subscribe, and it would really help us out. So thank you. We have the same thing on the National Pulse. Um, the website is fundrealnews.com. Uh, we recently lost an entire uh, advertising affiliate network because, because we're too truthful, I guess. Um, and of course, Jack has this incredible show, this incredible podcast. I want to make sure everyone's subscribing to that. And of course, get on Getter. Thank you for your time. God bless. Yeah.